Welcome to the Green Card Podcast. This is the place to find out how you could soon be living the American dream. Who am I? I'm James George. I made my dream move to California and I'm loving every minute. Over the next 45 minutes, we will have another amazing guest to help you make your dream move. So this week, I've got a great guest on the show. I have an immigration attorney called Lisa Khan. Hello, Lisa. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Well, obviously, every day you deal with all different types of visas. But first of all, let's hear a little bit about yourself, your history, um, where were you originally from, that type of thing. Sure. Okay. So um, I'm born in the U.S., one of the lucky ones that acquired U.S. citizenship at birth. Grew up for the most part in the Midwest and um, went to University of Michigan for law school. I did a joint program in law and world politics. I have a master's degree in world politics as well. I started practicing immigration law in 1997 in Houston, um, doing primarily business and family immigration, but mostly business immigration for a law firm there. And then in 2001, moved to Orlando, Florida, where I've been ever since. Um, I had uh, gotten engaged in 2001, and my husband and I, or fiance at that time, decided to move to Florida to be closer to family. We have family here. Okay. And okay. Uh, we both wanted to continue careers and have children, and so we said, let's move where there's family. So we did just that. And been in Orlando ever since and uh, love it. I worked for, as I mentioned, a firm in Houston initially for four years, and then I worked for a law firm in downtown Orlando for about two years and then went off on my own. So I'm a sole practitioner, and I've been on my own now for about 14 years. Okay. And okay. I love it. I, immigration, I feel like, is my passion. And in regards to what you. visas and things you work with mm-hmm. um, for uh, I obviously I know you from an E2 visa group to do with mainly British people mm-hmm. so I would um, and do you deal with a lot of British people you know or is it all, sure, people, I from do. all people from all different types yeah. of the world and I think I, you know, I, I, I do all types of business and family immigration the areas that I don't specialize in really would be kind of the deportation removal asylum work that tends to to be a lot of immigration court work, and I really don't focus on that area. Um, within the business context, um, really, you know, all areas of business immigration, but I do a lot of E2 investor visas. I maybe have a little bit of a niche in that area. Um, within kind of the greater Orlando, Central Florida area, there is a fairly large British uh, kind of population, yep. and um, and I, I have worked with a lot of those clients over the years, and I really enjoy the E2, and it's nice because I think the more you, you know, certainly the more you do something, the, the more you learn and the better you are at it. doesn't necessarily make immigration easier, which I always find that an interesting fact about practice of immigration law. After 20, you know, one years or so, you'd think it would be easier, but um, I'm better at it, certainly over the years, but I don't know that it's that much easier <laughs> Um, you know, certainly a little bit more so than when I started, but it's it's still a challenging area, and you've really got to stay on top of the the changes in, um, in large part in adjudication standards and maybe policies, procedures, and the, the general structure of the immigration law has not largely changed over the years, but um, a lot of the, the ins and outs of practicing immigration have, and sometimes that changes with the the political environment as well. So yeah, I mean, I know. To, yeah, 
sorry, I, I know myself how little things um, change because when we went for our yeah. visa interview, um, we were told by uh, the attorney who set us up that my wife would just book the interview and then we would just both turn up on the day and our children would be included on that as well. And then we turned up okay. and they were like, no, you need to have your own separate one. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah. little things like that, yeah, they change. And obviously if you're not doing it every day, then people don't know it's what's true. changed. Yeah, little things, little things can have a big impact, um, that's for sure. Um, sometimes it's a matter of you know, what a particular embassy might want for a visa application changes or the way that they want it, whereas in the past you might have submitted something by, by mail and now it's to be scanned and emailed. Um, filing fees can change. And so all those little things you really have to be on top of and alert to. So in regards to L1s, O1s, those types of visas, do yeah. you deal with many of them, or is it mainly I do. that you deal with? No, I do a little bit of um, a little bit of everything in the business context. On the non-immigrant visa side, um, everything from E2 treaty investor visas to E1 tr- uh, treaty trader visas. Yeah. Um, the H1Bs, which are for specialty occupation workers, individuals who have a bachelor's degree or higher, or the equivalent thereof, a job offer from a U.S. employer. Um, L1 visas, which are for intercompany transferees, for multinational managers, executives, um, or specialized knowledge professionals. I do O1 visas as well um, for individuals with extraordinary ability. I've done quite a few of those um, for tennis coaches. Um, maybe that's a product of being in Florida as yeah. well. Um, I don't do a lot of P visas or really hardly any P visas. P visas are, are for entertainers, athletes, performers, and a lot of those I think a lot of those folks end up uh, maybe using attorneys out of New York or L.A. where that sort of... Uh, probably, sort yeah, of but have got links common. with their agents. Except, yeah, that yeah. just deal so, with top-end people. Yeah, so yeah. that's an area that I really don't have um, a lot of expertise in. Our visas are for religious workers, and I just don't see a lot of those, but that's something that I have done in the past. TN visas for um, Canadians and Mexicans under NAFTA, that I do um, handle, as well as E3 visas, which is similar, and that's but uh, but it's for Australians. Um, and then on occasion, we'll do a J1 exchange visitor visa, or we might extend someone's um, uh, visitor stay, their B1 or B2 stay in the U.S. as a visitor for business or pleasure. We'll do an extension of their stay, or we might change someone's status over to, say, an F1 student visa. So that that's, you know, kind of broad, quick, you know, just a quick broad quick uh, review of all of the different ones. Yeah. Ones. Yes. Most popular, I'd say, are the E and the and the L, really. Um, the H-1B used to be more common. I think I did a lot more of those, but they were having problems with the, the cap. There's an H-1B cap and um, it, uh, it limits our ability to do as many H-1Bs perhaps as I would like to. When we originally were going to move, um, we thought we could get an L1 visa. So mm-hmm. we had a business in the UK. We, My research suggested I could set up a business in the US and then transfer myself on an L1. Spoke to quite a few attorneys about this and they said, no, that wasn't possible. But then I know someone who did do that who's living in the US. So mm-hmm. is it actually possible to do it? Well, you know, the good lawyer answer is maybe. Um, the l1 yeah the l1 requires that um an individual have worked for a foreign company outside the u.s for at least one year in the past three years as an executive or a manager or an l1a the l1b category is for specialized knowledge professionals but we see more more so managers and executives um 
and that that individual is now transferring to the U.S. to work for a related company here, also as a manager or an executive. The foreign entity and the U.S. company have to be related through common ownership and control. So the connection between the two entities um, really relates to the you know the ownership and majority ownership and whether it's a, a parent, subsidiary, affiliate, that yeah. sort of thing. The tricky thing, I think, for the L1A generally is um, whether or not someone really meets the definition of a multinational executive or manager. And immigration loves to see that if someone is at that level of an executive or manager, that they're relieved really from producing the the products or services of the business on a day-to-day basis and have subordinate staff that that really can kind of do the day-to-day. So an executive, for example, would really be somebody who's kind of the big ideas person setting the policy direction, um, you know, goals of the organization and you know, having a high level of discretionary authority. And a manager then is somebody who's managing staff, managing other professionals, managing supervisors perhaps, um, immigration loves to see organizational charts, payroll records, that type of thing. So I find with the L1, what can be challenging um, for individuals that may have their own business overseas is that if it's just too small or doesn't have a lot of staff, yeah. it's very, very hard to get those L1s through. Okay. And probably harder today than it was, you know, even five to 10 years ago. Um, I think there's a some cases that we might have gotten through for smaller businesses, I don't think would stand as good a chance today. I see. So it, it, it could be possible, but more than likely, it's going to be more difficult and you've got to have a, a, a decent sized company in order for it to, to yeah, go Yeah, you've got to have a decent sized company so you can really justify that you know, you're an executive or manager. You know, sometimes I'll give the example of my own law office and I say, well, I'm the owner, I'm the president. I do get to make those executive decisions about, you know, are we going to you know, hire more staff? Are we going to expand to another location? And what kind of stationery are we going to use? All of those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, I'm primarily producing the services, the legal services of the business. Um, and I only have a you know, legal assistant and a receptionist. So I'm really the one doing the legal work, even though I also am the executive. So I, this, you know, my size of a business would never fly for a multinational executive for an L1. If I was the managing partner of a 200 attorney law firm and not really practicing law much anymore, but really managing the firm's operations and things like that, then I'd be a great, you know, I L1A see. executive. Brilliant. Thank you very much for that. That yeah. really is really helpful. In regards it to have to be a 200 person, you know, operation, but you know, it's always helpful to have yeah. you know, more yeah. staff better. You get the idea. Yeah, completely. Yeah. In regards to the O1, um, how extraordinary, how extraordinarily do you have to be mm-hmm. to get that? In regards yeah. to, well, that's a good question. There are kind of set criteria that um, that immigration sort of um, sets forth in the in the regulations um, as to how to prove that one's extraordinary. It really there's a there's an O1 visa, which is a non-immigrant visa um, for individuals who have extraordinary ability, and then there's also an immigrant visa or a green card for individuals who have extraordinary ability. And interestingly, I've, I've had some. I, I recall I had a gentleman that had come in um, to my office thinking that he would be uh, needing to get an E2 visa, and the more we talked about his background, I realized that I think he had a shot at extraordinary ability, um, and we went right for an extraordinary ability immigrant petition. We paid a premium processing fee of $1,225 that we had an approval in two weeks and he immigrated over with the green card and never ended up having to, you know, to wow. go an E2 route. That's not for everybody. Not everybody is extraordinary. He was delighted because he didn't realize he was extraordinary, um, but uh, we were able to, you know, 
to demonstrate that he truly was. His field was construction project management, um, but he was, uh, you know, construction project manager of the year in his home country. He'd worked on some uh, really impressive projects. He had been featured in some magazines and newspapers. He had commanded a high salary for the work that he that he does, that sort of thing. The criteria essentially for extraordinary would be things along that line, that somebody's received um, prizes, awards in recognition of the work that they do, that perhaps there's published material about them and the work that they've done. Um, if they're a member in associations that require outstanding achievements, uh, if they have uh, made any original contributions to the field, um, that, you know, are of significance to the, to the area in which they work. Uh, if they've had a leading or a critical role for organizations or institutions that have a distinguished reputation, if they've commanded a high salary or other remuneration in, in comparison to others. So those are the types of things that immigration is looking for. It can be, you know, most any field. We've done extraordinary ability for a whole variety of fields. As I mentioned, construction project management. We did one for um, kind of change management and business turnaround. We did one for a singer-songwriter, a dance music producer, a martial arts instructor, um, someone who, uh, let's see, was in, um, you know, cancer research. So it could be, could be any field, really, if there's value in that field and somebody's at the top of their game. I see. And, and I, I always say that the narrower the field, the easier it is to show that somebody's at the top. So sometimes we intentionally kind of, let's say someone in the field of architecture, we might narrow it down to residential architecture. I see. And in regards to when you're doing this, is it possible to look six months to a year in advance and for then that person to make sure that they try and tick those boxes? So, for example, I know one of the things is to have, you know, um, articles written about you, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a friend who worked extremely hard pretty much full time for six months to make sure that he had articles written about him so that that would tick one of the, the free things. And so is it something that you would help in, in that regard? If they didn't already have everything in place, could you help them put those things in place? Um, not so much. So I wouldn't in my role, I wouldn't be someone that would kind of reach out to the local newspaper and suggest a story about such and such in order to get those. But to, could you help them point them in those. the right direction so that they then know what to do to get to it? Um, I, I, you know, if they, if I, for example, if you know, we had someone and I said, well, are you a member of any associations in your particular field that you know require outstanding achievement? Well, no, you know, I could be, I could join the such and such, and I could apply for membership with this organization, but I haven't really gotten around to it. And I said. Well, do that. You yeah, know, I said, exactly. You know, go ahead yeah. and apply to be in the construction engineers of America or something like that. And, and then we can use that membership card, those criteria. So I can certainly, you know, advise people on areas that they could enhance and maybe build toward. Um, you know, sometimes it's somebody that is maybe not, uh, as far along in their career, but they're on a, on a path where they're going to be, you know, uh, having something published or, or you know, being featured in a newspaper, magazine, or maybe there's an article or a interview or something like that, but they're forthcoming. There are times when I've said, you know, we need to build a bit more of a case first. Yeah, I see. And I've had clients yeah. who said, give us a year, and we're going to really hit the ground running and try to be more mindful of hitting, ticking some of these boxes. Um, and so I think sometimes, uh, if you're aware of what it takes to to meet the criteria, then you might make some decisions a little bit differently going forward. 
Yeah. And in regards to the E2 visa, one of the main things that everyone asks all the time, and it's the, one of the things that I called up five different attorneys, and all of them gave me a completely different figure. So okay. it's what is the minimum that people can invest? Well, that's a great question. And I will say there is no set minimum specific figure. There's nothing in the immigration um, statutes or the regulations that say you must invest $100,000 or more. So there is no set figure for an E-2. Um, the E-2 requires that an individual make a substantial investment into a business. It has to be a commercial enterprise as opposed to, let's say, a, a second home that somebody's going to flip and then just makes the money off of in a year or so. Um, and they need to show that they're coming to direct and develop the business and that the business is not marginal or has the ability to be non-marginal. So kind of, you know, what does substantial really mean? Substantial is um, relative to the nature and value of the business that someone is investing in. So if someone's buying an existing business, for example, let's say that they're going to be buying a, a small restaurant and it's selling for $150,000 and that's the market value or the agreed upon price between buyer and seller. Um, so a substantial investment then if they're buying a business for $150,000 is generally as the rule of thumb 75% or more of the value. So in that scenario, if they, if the individual said, well, we're going to pay cash 150,000 to buy the business worth 150,000, I'd say, great. It's a substantial investment. You're putting in 100% of the value. In that same scenario, if they said, well, we have 125,000 to, you know, to, to bring to the table, but the seller's willing to finance the balance of 25,000 in a promissory note that's payable over two years in monthly increments, that would be fine too, because $125,000 investment relative to the 150,000 value is still substantial. In that same scenario, if someone said we've got 10,000 cash and the seller's going to finance the 140,000, then we have a problem because yeah. that uh, relative to the value is not substantial. So general rule of thumb is 75% or more of the value. Unless it's a high dollar value business, then there's a bit of a sliding scale where you could maybe go as low as 50%. So if someone said, I'm buying a business for $800,000 and I'm going to put down 400000 cash and then pay the, the seller in the next four years the balance, that would be okay because we're talking kind of a high dollar volume and you can get away with as low as 50% investment. What about startup businesses? What about often I see yeah. people ask about, I don't know, example is there a, a recruitment business which doesn't actually really need much investment at all and sure. they may not actually my understanding of it is is more to do with not necessarily how much you invest in that point but maybe how many employees you're going to get that type of thing yeah so with the startup business sometimes you might have you know an out the door this is the you know we've added up all the costs to get this business up and running and operational and if we use that restaurant example Let's say someone's going to start a restaurant and it's going to take $150,000 investment between leasing a space and building it out and you know, buying the equipment and doing the menu and all that for it to be operational. Then immigration or the consulate would want to see that, okay, here's the you know identified expenses to open this business. And they'd want to see that a substantial portion of that has already been invested. So if you figure it's going to take $150,000 to open the business, they'd want to see that you're already in the process of and actively that's what we spending did. Yeah, we a fair amount of that. Yeah. So for a new business, it's a bit of a leap of faith because, you know, in that scenario, you'd have to really sign the lease and start building it out and start buying things. It doesn't have to be ready to open tomorrow, but you got to get pretty close and put a chunk of money in to get the visa. With a business, as you indicated, that's maybe more service-oriented or doesn't require, you know, kind of like the bricks and mortar or inventory or equipment, that can be a little trickier because – 
sometimes folks might say, look, all I need is a laptop and a good idea, and I can get this business started from my home office for $3,000. That's going to be a tough sell because if everybody could get in the door on an E2 for $3,000, I think it would wouldn't really work so well. We'd have too many too many people trying to get in on a business like that. Um, what we have done before when a business doesn't really inquire, require a lot of investment is try to get a little bit creative with a new business and um, discuss some things with the client like, well, are you going to be needing a company car for the business? Well, I am going to need a company car, but I'll also need my personal car. Well, that's okay. Let's have that vehicle be part of the company And we did purchase. that, yeah. <laughs> yep. So that's, I think that's a good thing to do. You can use you know, legal fees for the immigration process as part of the investment, um, fees for incorporating a new business, and business attorney's fees and, and um, you know, the state fees for incorporating a business. You can use some tr- some you know, reasonable travel expenses if someone's flying to the U.S. and staying in a hotel and has a flight and they're you know they're uh, doing the legwork on starting a business that you could use as part of it. Anything that you can reasonably relate to the business, um, and then a certain amount of funds that are unspent and uncommitted but are in a, say a business bank account for initial capital reserves, we can use as well. Um, there's a tricky thing where you've got to show, you know, investment really doesn't include unspent money, but a certain portion of funds that are set aside um, can be used as investment. But it's a bit of a big, you know, the whole picture thing. If you say, well, I look, I've transferred $80,000 into a business account, and once I get the visa, I plan to spend that money by doing X, Y, and Z, you won't ever get the visa because there's no commitment of funds, nothing's been spent. You know, someone could get the visa and then change their mind and never spend the money. So they kind of look at the credibility of, well, what are you going to do? What's the plan? What have you spent so far? Have you thought this through? And so that's where you can use some unspent money that's set aside, and that can get the dollar figures up a little bit more too. My understanding, got, yeah. my understanding of it is um, from speaking to so many different people that if, for example, and my advice when I try and give out to people is, you could probably do it for about fifty thousand dollars if you did it right. Would that be, would that be, a, would that be an yeah. okay figure? You think? I, I think I think you can argue that. Sometimes I'll, I'll tell folks that it's you know you could argue that hey, it's only going to take fifty thousand for us to get this business off the ground, and we've spent the fifty thousand. Well, then you've got a good argument that you've made a substantial investment. Where someone might have a, uh, a problem with, with a scenario like that is maybe not so much on the substantial investment component of getting an E2 visa, but maybe on the marginality issue. Um, or someone might say, look, I found a great business that's for sale for 45000 or it's a business I'm interested in. I'm willing to pay the full cash price, so that's a substantial investment. But then we'll look at the business and say, well, is this a marginal business, marginal business or not? On the marginal issue, what they're looking at is, is this a business that is able to provide more than enough income to the investor and his or her family than just to kind of get by? So at an absolute minimum, I usually kind of figure, well, if it's a family of four coming to the U.S. and, and going to be living off of the E2 business, they've at least got to make enough money through either salary um, or profit or a combination of the two to keep that family at or above the poverty guideline. You know, generally, the poverty guideline or approximately the poverty guideline for people would be it's 31,375. So I'd say, look, if you're going to put 50,000 into a business, but you're only going to generate sales of 75,000 and profit of 15, and you can only pay yourself a thousand dollars a month, you might argue that you're making a substantial investment, but you've got a marginal business. Yeah, that's that not makes complete sense. Yet. 
Yeah. So it's a little bit of the two. You know, we got to, and so we always kind of make sure that we can cover both of those issues. Um, sometimes you don't need a lot of money, and as long as we can show that the business has the ability to be non-marginal. Um, if you're if a website a developer, if you're a website developer yeah. or something like that in the UK, and you've, yeah. you've got a substantial business that you've built in the UK, and then you're going to go to the US and you find an office already, you've got your one-year lease, you could even pay the one-year lease up front, you buy yourself a car, that type of thing. So it's stuff which you're already going to invest in quite a lot of money in. You'd say you know, that type yeah. of thing. So you've invested a decent amount, say up to 50000 you already have found someone that you're going to employ over there, mm-hmm. that type of thing. I think that kind of thing can be doable, particularly yeah. if it's well thought out. There's maybe a good business plan with reasonable projections. I think you stand a better chance of approval if this is a field that somebody already has um, proven track record in yeah. um, and is they're likely to, you know, to is succeed rather than somebody with kind of a pie-in-the-sky idea. Um, we did one like that fairly recently, which was really for a brand new kind of a real estate office in the U.S. And the main expense was they did secure location and pay security deposit and prepayment of rent. Um, but other than that, they didn't need a heck of a lot to really get it going. A little bit of office equipment. Um, I think, we, you know, we included legal fees and we included incorporation of the business fees and uh, maybe, you know, website, uh, initial payment to, to start a website and build that up. Um, some things like that. So like along the lines of what you're talking about when it's more of a service-oriented business, um, you can get a little bit creative. And again, it's kind of that whole big picture and the, and the entire package. And does it make sense? Is it credible? And is it believable? Brilliant. And I always get asked, people who have never even run a business before, who haven't got a clue where to start, how do I move to the U.S.? And I said, probably the best option for them is the E2 visa. And I gather in that situation, they'd be better buying a company which already exists, has already got a couple of employees, is already earning, you know, as you say, an amount of money that would be able to pay a family of four to live off. Would you agree that would be the best option for them, for someone who is looking to move there? Possibly so. You know, if it's somebody who's not run a small business before and they're going into an area that they really are unfamiliar with, you know, let's say it's someone who was a police officer and now they're going to uh, run a landscaping company and they haven't really done anything like that, then there may be some some value in buying a business that's already operational, that already has kind of systems in place. Maybe they have a you know a training period with the seller, things yeah. like that. Um, unless they've got a passion and a love for you know landscaping and they've got a vision for a new business and this is something they've always wanted to do, and you know then that might be a little bit different story. But I would say the majority of clients that I see will and will buy an existing business. For a few reasons, maybe the comfort of, you know, when we're buying something that has a little bit of a proven track record and we can do the due diligence, look at the tax returns, et cetera. Um, and then also, I think, too, more people are risk averse in starting a new business and having to spend the money first before they have the visa. And when you're buying an existing business, immigration is fine if you just transfer the fund into escrow in the U.S. Um, and have a contingency clause in a purchase contract that if if the visa is not issued for some reason, then the deal is off and the money goes back to the investor. Um, but if the visa is issued, the funds are in escrow and they're released then to the seller and the closing of the business occurs. So I think a lot of people feel like that's, for, for them, maybe a safer way to invest their money that they feel they've got a way out if something doesn't go quite right with the visa. 
Yeah, do you um, know, I, um, I had a friend who yeah. came on and I explained that to them and said on another podcast, I said that's a lot of often a lot less stressful way of doing it because we invested every penny that we had into our business. And even though we were confident we would get the visa, if we didn't, that was every penny that we'd ever saved. Sure. Gone. <laughs> I would, I would imagine that results in at least a sleepless night or two. <laughs> yes, it does. So that's yeah. why it's quite good. Yeah. The whole escrow situation, you're essentially, I mean, you can even essentially you're only going to be paying out your attorney fees and sometimes they will, I don't know if what your situation is, but sometimes you only have to pay sometimes with certain people if it goes through, for example. So, you, yeah, you've got very minimal risk if you do it that way. Yeah, you know, fairly minimal risk. You know, there may be a non-refundable deposit. Some sellers will say, gee, you know, I've got a couple of potential buyers, and if I've got to hold off until the visa is issued, then maybe I'm going to go with a different buyer. So you might lose a little bit if you say, well, you know, there's a non-refundable good faith deposit or that sort of thing. But yeah, the risk is, the risk financially, I think, is less. Yes. Um, some folks will say, you know, well, the, the, the you know, the, the benefit of maybe starting one's own business is I will hear, you know, folks that say, well, we spent $100,000 on a pool cleaning company. And when we got over to the U.S., well, it wasn't quite what had been represented. Maybe the books were a little uh, questionable and we you know, immediately lost some pool roots because we were new at the business. So some folks have had a difficult time maybe kind of having to build a business back up um, if something was maybe not as as rosy as it had been painted and i've had certain clients that say look i have enough savvy or confidence in my own skills or my background that i would rather take my money and do it my way and buy brand new equipment and a new website and build it from scratch so different strokes for different folks and and you know different levels of comfort as well um but uh it's a, one thing I like about the E2 is it's a pretty flexible visa. It can fit the needs of a lot of different, you know, different individuals with different, you know, incomes and interests. Yes. I think, Lisa, that's absolutely amazing. There's more things that I want to talk to you about. But to be honest, I know you're an extremely busy person. And what might be quite good is to get you on on another podcast and to, and to actually talk in depth about um, pathways to the green card. Sure. I've got a feeling that could be quite a long conversation. Uh, and also little things like with the E2 as, you know, doing business as, for example, and setting up mm-hmm. other businesses on the E2. Because these are things which, right. in particular for me, are really crucial right now. So we could actually talk about my current situation as well um, so that people can actually see who are actually on an E2 at the moment, get more information about how they can develop their yeah, business absolutely. and then go to a green card. There's a lot of issues that tend to, you know, and themes that recur, you know, such as we started as a pool cleaning company and now we want to branch off into landscaping or open a nail shop and can yeah. we do those things? You know, that's a, that's a big issue. Um, and there's also, I think another thing we might want to cover is um, when two spouses are working in the business and does one spouse really need a work card or not? And I've got some yes, thoughts on yes. that too, that I'm happy to share. And, and the green card, that's always a hot topic. You know, we're here, we're on the E2, but we don't want to keep renewing and extending and our children are going to turn 21 and, and how do we get the green card? And also renewing is another one. The amount of times that people are asking, which obviously I didn't even know you could do before you came here, is you can go and renew in random places all around rather well, than going I've back to the UK. Well, I've got real 
strong opinions on that um, and from personal experience and somewhat recent as well. Um, I've always been of the mindset that it's best to renew in your home country. Um, and, and I have a lot of British clients, so that ends up, you know, for many being London. Um, third country nationals can apply in other locations with kind of permission of the, of the consulate or embassy. We did that last fall in Canada for a renewal of a British client. They went to Toronto and it was very smooth. Um, and, you know, other than maybe having to be gone five days or so, uh, everything was quite smooth. And then we did it again this year for British clients who went to Toronto and maybe a different officer, different day. And they had a uh, not as pleasant an experience and the officer was largely concerned with whether they still had a domicile or a residence in the UK, put the case on hold, um, finally asked for some more evidence. We sent that in, but by this time, time had passed. They ended up flying back to the US and they had to go back to Canada. And honestly, it was, it was kind of a nightmare. Yeah. So after that experience, I'm not so keen on, on the third country. And then she made, the officer made a big issue of, well, you know, you're a third country national. We don't have to handle this case. And I felt like, uh, I don't know if it was just that officer or that consulate, but um, it was, it wasn't a pleasant experience and it made me a little skittish about doing that. Doing that again. Yeah. Uh, and then in recent weeks we decided to file in Dominican Republic and I had emailed the consulate ahead of time. They said, yes, we'll take third country nationals. Here's what you need to do. We filed the steps. No problem. They reviewed it very quickly and said, okay, now make it an appointment. And it has been probably over two weeks of every day, multiple times a day, trying to make an appointment with no success. Ah, so that, yeah, so that's interesting to another, know. You see a lot of success yeah. stories, but there's also horror yeah. stories out there as well then. I think a lot of people don't want to share their horror stories because they may be embarrassed or think, well, we didn't have such a good experience, but I don't want to broadcast that to everyone else. Yeah. Um, I don't have a problem sharing anything because uh, uh, you know, it's it's not a – with either of these, it's not so much a legal issue. It's more of a uh, procedural and an officer-based, you know, issue or, you know, how to make the appointment. And the appointment's problematic because they're using a different appointment system that just yeah. doesn't allow you to. So silly little things like that. And sometimes I think, gee, I, didn't, I went to law school for this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I have, um, yeah those, that's, that's always been my concern. And the reason I think for so many years I was very conservative um, on filing e-renewals with other countries because things change on a dime. What they're doing one week may change next week, especially in the island countries. Um, and that makes me nervous. I like to know what to expect, how it's going to play out, what the time frames are, and be able to advise the clients accordingly. And it's a little bit of a roll of the dice when you do it at another consulate um, that's not your own and that you know may be doing things a little differently. So I think, you know, I thought, well, I may be doing a disservice to my clients by being overly conservative but i think in retrospect it was better to to be to do yeah, that that makes complete sense be too keen on this third country national uh renewal uh too much of the future so then lisa thank you so much for coming on if someone wants to sure. um, ask you some questions use your services how would they contact you best way to reach me is through my email uh, my website is lisavisa.com, and then my email is lisa at lisavisa.com. You can visit my website, um, and then there's a kind of a contact page that you can fill out a little, you know, one of the brief contact forms. It'll take you right to my um, email, or you can just email me directly, 
Lisa at lisavisa.com. And I see there's lots of information on the different visas and things there for people if they want to read up more on the, yeah, the different visas. Yeah, I've got kind of a, just a you know, little thumbnail sketch, kind of a brief overview of the, the major types of employment-based non-immigrant visas that we touched on, as well as the immigrant visas, and I, maybe we'll save that for another call, um, and a little bit on family immigration as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know you're busy, so I'll leave you to it. And no hopefully we'll speak again soon. I'd like that. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Mm-hmm.